we're going to go ahead and look at the first 14 um, verses here in Acts 21. And title this this sermon the the deceiving heart um, there's it's hard to title this one um, but the scripture will speak for itself so we'll start in verse one and and just take heed to the uh, inerrant word of God verse twenty one or sorry verse one and when he had parted from them and set sail he came by the straight course to coast. We came, we came by the, a straight course to coast, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with, their, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, it says, how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your written word. Lord, we pray that it speaks to us today. Lord, that we use it to, to glorify you in each and every step that we take, each and every breath that we breathe. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so question here I want to to jump right off and start thinking about is, is how do we determine God's will when people are in disagreement? When there's disagreement about God's will, how do we determine what God's will is? You see this disagreement here in this passage. You see where Paul, he's like, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. All the other people in Tyre and Caesarea, they're like, no, do not go. So you see this, this disagreement in both receiving a word from the Holy Spirit, but having two different ideas on what the will is for, for Paul. So let's back up here um, to chapter 19, kind of just look here very quickly at what Paul's own spirit-led conviction is. 
So in, in chapter 19, verse 21, it says, <clears throat> Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's resolved in the spirit that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to end up eventually going to Jerusalem. So that's where he's headed right now, to, to Jerusalem. Um, and so you see here the difference on where he says he's resolved in the spirit. Some translations don't capitalize spirit there. Um, but I believe that he's talking, he's saying about the Holy Spirit. The reason why I say this is because Luke, his typical way of 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 talking about the Spirit and making a difference between somebody's human spirit versus the Holy Spirit, he uses these personal pronouns, like in, in Luke. So again, Luke was the one that wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. Back in Luke, um, first chapter, verse 47, he says, my spirit has rejoiced. Use that personal pro- pronoun to indicate the human spirit. Chapter 8, verse 55, it says, Her spirit returned, speaking of Jairus' daughter as she is resurrected back from the dead. Luke 23, 46, Jesus cried out. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, his human spirit. And then Luke in Acts 7, verse 59, recording Stephen saying, Jesus, receive my spirit, that personal pronoun, my spirit. In Acts 17, Paul, when he was outside of Athens, remember he was standing there outside of Athens just seeing all the idolatry and paganism in Athens. He says his spirit was provoked. So using that, that personal pronoun. So most, almost every time Luke would use these personal pronouns when indicating the human spirit. And so here we see in... in 19, Paul saying that he's resolved in the Spirit, so likely indicating the Holy Spirit. And you look in, even look further in, in Acts 20. We went over this a, a few weeks ago. Act, Acts 20, verse 22. It says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So again, constrained by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's not saying constrained by my Spirit. He says the Spirit. And think here, remember, like, he's traveling now to Jerusalem. All these things are kind of in, coming into place. He, everything is kind of very favorable at this time for him traveling to Jerusalem. The winds were favorable as he sailed this course uh, the transportation was available. His motives were commendable. Remember, he's, he's bringing that contribution that he collected from all the churches in Macedonia uh, and bringing that to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's wanting to get there by Pentecost to, to worship with them, to build them up, and to encourage the believers there. So in Acts 20 here, we see... Remember, he just got done speaking to the Ephesian elders, um, knelt down, prayed with them. There was weeping on both parts. And then he says, in verse 1 here, chapter 21, and when he had departed, that word literally means tear away. And so just kind of 
puts in, in, in emphasis on how gripped he was for having to leave the Ephesian elders. So he was torn away when he departed from them. He set sail and he came by a straight course to the coast and the next day to Rhodes. Rhodes is where one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, is at, was at. And from there to Patara, having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And we came to Cyprus, leaving it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. The ship was unloading its cargo. Um, so you see like a little shift here. Paul wanting to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so instead of continuing and to take the route alongside the, the uh, inland route, he took a ship straight across the Macedonian Sea to get to Jerusalem. Uh, it would have been a five-day journey across that sea. There we go. Probably was on a completely different ship um, size-wise. Smaller ship stayed alongside the, uh, the, the coastline, and, and so he's probably the ship in which he was on was a very large ship able to, to cross out in the middle of the, the sea there. Um, and then we get to verse 4. It says, And having sought out the disciples, he stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what, they were obviously receiving some information. What was the prophecy they were receiving? Remember back now in, in chapter 20, verse 23, it says, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. So remember, as he's going through all these different uh, towns on his way back, he's receiving these prophets, prophecies that bonds and afflictions, afflictions and imprisonments await. So that was what these people here in Tyre and Caesarea both received these this prophecy from the Holy Spirit. It says he was there for seven days. So the, the, the tense of the Greek here indicate that they were urging him over and over and over and over again for seven days, pleading with Paul, do not go, do not go to Jerusalem. But the prophecy wasn't to not go, and it was that imprisonments and afflictions await. So in their mind, like, don't go. Prison and aff- afflictions await you. This is exactly what the brothers in Caesarea were urging down in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Lord, the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It says, Then when we heard this, we and the people there urged urged him not to go, not to go to Jerusalem. So you see here Agabus, he's the same prophet that prophesied about the famine in, in Jerusalem and that we've seen earlier in Acts. And so here we see Agabus, he's using this method of Old Testament prophecy that some of the Old Testament prophets were used. They would, they would act out the prophecy in which they were given. 
So that bonds and afflictions, that, that imprisonment and affliction prophecy that was given to Agabus, he would act it out. And just like Isaiah, Isaiah, he walked around nearly naked, symbolizing God's judgment on Egypt and his judgment on Cush. Ezekiel, he built that little miniature siege wall against Jerusalem to portray the outward eventual siege from the Babylonians. So here, Agabus, he's, he's in good standing with this visual approach to prophecy. And then we see the response. We see the response from the people. They're like, don't go. Paul, don't go. In their minds, they, they needed the Apostle Paul. They couldn't do without the Apostle Paul. They didn't want him to go. I think this, this passage here, it speaks to how the church can differ in the message of the Holy Spirit, message of, of God at times. Um, I think eventually come into unison. But we see that there is a, a, a difference in how they're interpreting this message from the Holy Spirit, interpreting God's will for the life of, of the Apostle Paul. Notice here verse 12. It wasn't just the people um, in these cities. It says, when we heard this, notice that, that personal pronoun, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just the people. This was Luke, the seven brothers, the seven companions, all urging him. And they had good motives here, but they were out of step with God's infinite predestined will and plan for the Apostle Paul. Just out of step. They failed to realize that God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants. None of us are, are not expendable. It's, it's Christ. It's Christ who builds his church, not Paul, not you, not I. It's Christ. It's Christ who, who uses whomever he chooses. It's, it's Christ who chooses when he chooses, where he chooses, how long he chooses, and when their testimony is complete. It is him who chooses to raise up another in their place. It's very easy for them to, to put Paul on a pedestal. Yeah, he, he was an apostle, but he was a man just like you and I. I think that's something that we can stumble in as well, putting certain people on pedestals. Recall here when, when Paul, when Paul went to the Corinthians, he says he did not come proclaiming to them the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom so that your faith might not rest in the power of men, but in the power of God. They had such an elevated view of Paul. And again, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to blame them. It's hard to blame them for having that elevated uh, view, stance on the Apostle Paul. But here we see that, that all were against Paul on this decision. So look here at Paul's response in, in verse 13. First part of 13, he says, Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? He says, weeping and breaking my heart. 
He was moved. He was moved by their response. Right? And, and, and for them to oppose him deeply troubled him, but his response was gracious. His response was, was humble. So a good question to, to ask ourselves is, how do we respond? How do we respond when, when somebody differs with us? What is our initial response? Is your response like, ah, they differ from me. They're not even a Christian. It's heretics. Is it lashing out in an argumentative way? Or do you respond with grace and humbleness? I believe that's how Paul responds here. He was like, guys, I understand. I understand your heart. I understand your concerns. But I am ready. I'm ready to die for Christ. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. Whatever awaits me, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Paul's resolve was, and it was made of steel, forged in the fire. And he could not be deterred. Could not be. So let's look how, how did Paul then, or how did they then respond to Paul? So you just see these like, this dialogue of, comment, response, comment, response. So then how does Paul respond? Or I'm sorry, how do they respond to Paul saying, weeping and breaking my heart? Look there in verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. It's very, very interesting. Very interesting response here. You know, they, they, again, they didn't call him a heretic. They didn't break communion with him. They respected that decision. And I'm not sure any one of them would have stood up and rebuked Paul anyway. That would have been a, probably a rough day for any of them. But they backed off. They backed off and said, let the will of the Lord be done and entrusted him into the hands of God. I think too often within the church we are just we're too quick to pass judgment on people that we just we just differ with. Maybe it's the matter of of Christian conscience, Christian liberty. It's very common. You know, what do, what does Paul say about about that situation about people who differ in Christian conscience? I'm glad you asked. He responds, he says in, in Romans chapter 14, you can turn there if you'd like. It's really quick there. He says, right here at the beginning of, of 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And it goes on to give more examples of people who esteem 
one specific day or, or all days alike. So Paul there, he's indicating that Christian liberty, Christian conscience is, is, is going to vary. It's going to differ. Maybe it's uh, how we interpret Scripture. We judge them. Now it's important to understand there is only there is only one correct interpretation of Scripture. So either both people are right, one person's right, one person's wrong, or they're both wrong. There is only one interpretation. But as soon as someone has a different interpretation, we judge them. We call them heretics. We want to run them out of the church over issues that we just differ in instead of being responding in grace and humbleness and going to the scriptures and, and talking it through and looking at it. Scripture is the only authority. I think the response here of the people and of Paul's companions here speaks to the love and to the graciousness of the Spirit of God who is in their hearts, in their lives. They were at odds, and they had differing ideas of God's will for Paul. The group was absolutely convinced that he should not go. I think this is a good example here of of an impulsive response. So what I mean by that is they they receive this prophecy of, of afflictions and imprisonments await, and their impulsive response was, It made sense. Their impulsive response was like, no, Paul, you cannot go. But Paul, he was absolutely convinced that he should go. The separation between impulsive response and a discerning response. Because remember, Paul, he's been resolving in this. His his 30-mile walk by himself from Troas to Asos. He, he was resolving this. It was already resolved in his mind through discernment, not impulse. We can fall to this as well. We'll read something in Scripture and our impulse is like, that's it. I, this is it. And then we run off and yell at people and tell them that they're wrong because this is it. A few months goes by, and then you realize that you are wrong. It's an impulsive response rather than a discerning and chewing through what the Word says. So how do brothers respond in moments like this? It's pretty simple. They graciously respond. They humbly respond. This is not an issue of the gospel. This is not an issue of the trinity or the divinity of Christ. But on a personal leading here of the life of Paul. So we need to make sure we put this on the level in which it belongs. It's not anything egregious to the gospel. James said, he said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, there are times, there are certainly times where we do judge one another. Church discipline, things like that. But in this context here, and in... 
what I just read in James, he's emphasizing we treat each other with grace, treat each other with humility. So how do we apply? How do we apply these things to our lives in which we see here in this passage? We, we see this conflict in determining God's will. So what, what ought we do? What, what should our approach be? What should our approach look like when, when God's will for our lives, uh, when we're looking at God's will for our lives and looking at God's will for the lives of others? How do we approach this? So the very first thing is Scripture is our authority. Keeping that on the forefront of our minds, sola scriptura, solely scripture alone. Scripture is our authority. Does your desires align with what the word of God says? Does it align with what the word of God says? That's our first and foremost. Not the opinions of men, but what does the word of God say? Hebrews 1 tells us, Long ago, at many, time, in, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's all right here. It's all right here in Scripture. We have it all. All that he wants to reveal to us, we have. I don't believe that there are prophets today who are receiving new revelation, as that would indicate that scriptures are not complete and that God is still revealing new information to man, which is not so. But remember what Paul informed Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Everything's there. He's given us everything to be complete, equipped for every good work. 1689 Confession, speaking on Sola Scriptura, says, Everything we need to know about God's glory and our salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated in or necessarily inferred by the Bible. Nothing should ever be added to the Bible, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. At the same time, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Bible. Scripture. Scripture alone is our authority. And it is fully sufficient. Completely sufficient. We must always go to the scriptures and ensure our desires are in alignment with God's desires. I watched a movie not long ago. Some of you may have seen it before. You saw it. It's called, it's called King David. I was like, all right, I'll check this out. See what kind of heresy is up in this movie. Richard Gere play, played... Uh, David, so you can kind of start to make an assumption. But the scene where, where David is, and his, his dying breath, and his last words to his son Solomon, it's a very dramatic scene. He's just there, you know, weak voice, says to his son, it's hard not to vomit, but he says, follow your heart. not what the scriptures say. 
David said, follow the scriptures. Don't follow your heart. Jeremiah reminds us, he's pretty clear on that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Follow our hearts, it's going to be going to be a rough time. But then again, Paul or David in Psalm 37, he says this, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Charismatics love that one. They love to, uh, they love to butcher it really bad. And Reading it out of context is like, oh, my heart's desires. What are my heart's desires? You know, for the carnal mind, the heart's desires are something completely different than a regenerated mind. So what then is the, the, the difference here between Jeremiah saying that our heart is deceitfully wicked, warning us not to follow our heart, and then David saying that the Lord will give you all your heart's desires? What's the difference? The separation is one whose heart is set to the desires of the world versus one whose heart is set on the delight of the Lord. One whose delights in all things through the Lord. One who desires the world, loves the world, the one who sets the ways of men above all else. This person can even perhaps be sincere in their desires. The Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, was sincere in his desires, sincere in persecuting Christians. Sincerely wrong. These people here in Tyre and Caesarea were certainly sincere. They had, they had the church in their best interest here, in their hearts, they believed it would be just detrimental to the church if they were to lose the Apostle Paul. Sincere hearts, but sincerely wrong. Their hearts were similar to, to Uzzah as he carried the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord said, do not touch. Do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. It began to fall, and what did Uzzah do? He reached out to catch it before it hit the ground instantly struck down by the Lord. In his mind, his desires were, were, he thought were good. He didn't want it to hit the ground, but he disobeyed direct command from the Lord. His heart was sincere, but sincerely wrong. The people here in, in Acts 21, they took the prophecy from the Holy Spirit, and through their own heart's desire, they misinterpreted it. They saw it as a, as a prohibition for Paul to just not go. Don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. That impulsive response. Paul himself, he accepted the prophecy as information. It was an informative prophecy. Preparing his heart and his mind for what lies ahead. And he discerned through that. Paul's heart and his mind was, was like that of, of, of the psalmist David. His delight was in the Lord, no matter what. His delight was in the Lord and all things in which he brought him through. Even if that meant he must go to Jerusalem, suffer greatly with afflictions, imprisonments, 
and even death. Again, the response of the people was, it was understandable. I believe was impulsive to the news that they received. They didn't discern through it. Paul already had much time to resolve and, and come to peace with God's will in his life. His desires have been pruned, they've been cleaned and, and just directed by him delighting in the Lord, no matter what. So sometimes God's will for, for us involves suffering. Remember the words of our Lord to, to Ananias. He's, he's speaking of Paul. He said, go, for he, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The cup of suffering and imprisonment Paul would face would result in the fulfillment of this Lord's promise. His Lord's promise here. And, and, and here soon, in the next few chapters, we'll see he's standing before King Agrippa. Likely he stood before Nero. Him following God's will, leading into the promise in which the Lord revealed to Ananias. So we may be faced where, where God's will for us, it puts us in a position where it costs us much more than another choice would. It may entail more difficulties, more sufferings. It, it may be worse for, for me physically, financially. Maybe a new job, a new location, giving up worldly comforts in order to better serve the Lord. To always be reminded, God's plans, God's plans are always the best plans, even, even if it entails loss, even if it entails suffering. We need, we need more men with this conviction. We need more godly men willing to sacrifice what worldly men cherish. We need men willing to shout the name of Christ from the rooftops, from the street corners. We need men who are willing to strap backpacks on their backs and head into the depths of the jungles. We need more men to stand firm in the truth of the light in the midst of the darkness. We need more men to be biblical husbands and fathers. We don't need more men who sit around on their video games, watch Netflix all day. We don't need any more of those men. We don't need more men who are concerned about their materialistic things. We don't need more men who are concerned more about their lawn than they are serving Christ and serving others. We need more Proverbs 31 women. We need more Priscilla's. 
We need more jails. Maybe not a whole lot more of them. This is the reality of modern evangelical Christianity. It's more about me, 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 me. Man, we saw that the past few days. If you were following the Southern Baptist Convention, we're not part of it, but it's good to, to pay attention to what's going on. We saw that big with Rick Warren as he stood up and presented his love letter to the SBC, which sounded more like a love letter to himself. It's all about what he did. So we see, we see this fall in, the, in evangelical Christianity. We need more men who are willing to stand for the truth. We don't need men who are all about me, 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 about what the Lord can do for me and what the Lord can do for my life and, and the comforts and the prosperity the Lord can give me. The seared mind is focused on the worldly desires of the heart. We need to snap out of it to awake, O oh sleeper. Finding our delight in the Lord and the Lord only. And our, if we find our delight in the Lord, and your heart's desires will drastically change. Drastically change. That's the difference there between David in Psalm 37 and Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17. The one who delights in the, in the Lord, their heart's desires are completely different. Jim Elliott, the, the missionary who died, he died the age of 29 was murdered by the Aka Indians trying to evangelize that group. It's back in, the, back in the 50s. He said this. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I pray that to be the desire of all of our hearts. Would you give up everything so that you may gain Christ? Would you give up everything? Ask yourself that this morning. What is truly what is your heart's desire? Examine your heart's desire. Has your heart been made new? Has God made you a new creation? Is your heart still a heart of stone? A heart desiring to please oneself? Or has he made your heart new, giving you a heart of flesh, desiring now the things of God, desiring holiness and righteousness, continuously seeking his will in all things? In that examination, don't try to deceive yourself that investigation of, of the heart, the carnal heart, is deceitfully wicked. We must always examine in the light of Scripture. The change of the heart is always a radical change. Always. Why? Because it is a supernatural encounter with the divine creator. 
and a supernatural influence will result in a supernatural change. It's a reminder that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ. If you truly know this, and, and he has truly borne witness to this in your heart and in your life, how much more then shall we desire his will? To seek his will. How much more shall we sacrifice for his will? How much more shall we be willing to suffer the loss of all things so that we may gain him? So that's the question I want to leave us with today. Is what is truly our, our heart's desire? It's our heart's desire on carnal things, things of the world. Or does our heart truly yearn and pant to serve and to seek his face every single day? Let's pray. Father, Father, we pray for your will. Your will alone. Nothing less. Lord, because we know your will is sufficient. Your will is above all things. Lord, we pray that you take our hearts And you turn it to seek your will. Your will in all things. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.